It is always good to be back. Uh, David, I think, has the notes. He was passing them out, although David disappeared. Uh, but he did have the notes. So if you don't have the notes, I think he put them on the back table there. So sorry I'm a little late getting over here. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Good? Good. Okay. We've only got this week and next week. Single tier, at least for me. <laughs> I'm sad. But no, this will be... It was good. Um, essentially, this morning, what I want to do is uh, address a couple things that I didn't get to address in the last eight weeks. I thought maybe they would just providentially fit in, but they didn't. So that's okay. So this is kind of, I'm calling it, uh, you know, the Puritans in daily life. Um, and mainly the two things I want to talk about is marriage and family as one thing. And then kind of, uh, you know, like meditation and prayer, personal devotions. Um, kind of like on the other extreme. So not super related, but, you know, ordinary daily life uh, in the Puritan. So those are the two things I want to talk about this morning. Uh, as always, you know, I'd like to do a quick review just so we know where we were, what we're doing, where we are, are in this uh, Pilgrim's Progress journey, you could say. Uh, who exactly were the Puritans? We looked at that the first couple of weeks. What can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? Last week, we did focus in on that. Uh, relationship between justification, sanctification. I pretty much used Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress kind of as a template for that. Uh, I called it, you know, the Reformed model of sanctification. Which, by the way, I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress, I think, for the fourth time. Um, it's so good. Like, I forgot how good it was. Um, so I'm really excited to walk through that next spring. Um, yeah, there's an edition that I'm reading through. I think I mentioned it last week. Uh, that I would highly recommend. If you don't have it, I can send you the link. Let me know. Um, you, you need to get an edition. I didn't realize this, actually, until I was comparing editions. I got my wife one that it's like a modern English edition. It's good. It's readable, sure. But it gets rid of Bunyan's notes. And his explanatory notes are kind of like the best part because it's like hard to understand sometimes what's going on here. And then he tells you, and it's like, oh. Um, so I was like, ah, oh. brings that edition way down in my book. Um, I didn't know. I know. It's it my, it my ignorance. I didn't know. So, yeah. So, so the edition that I have now, really, really good. It has all of Bunyan's notes and his scripture references, and then also puts in italics uh, explanatory notes from the editor, um, you know, a guy who's a Reformed pastor a few years ago. And also, he also puts in some scripture references. So like, for example, you know, Bunyan or Christian in Pilgrim's Progress a couple times says, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. What do you think he's alluding to? Do you guys know? What chapter? Book of the Bible? You guys know? Romans 7. Romans 7. Yeah? Good job, David. So he says that a couple times in there, and he actually puts in the footnotes, you know, in italics, this is probably an allusion to Romans 7.24 or something like that. So that's really helpful, uh, because Bunyan knows his Bible so well that oftentimes he's quoting it or alluding to it, and we don't even know. Um, and so he puts those in there. So anyways, that's all aside. I just... I'm excited for that class because reading through it, he illustrates important biblical theological truth so clearly. Um, and so that, I think that'll be a really, really good, profitable time thinking through the Christian life. And so uh, we, we kind of use that as a template, walking through, again, that relationship between justification and sanctification. I'm not going to go over these. Um, we spent a lot of time last week, believers standing in Christ, right? This is kind of a summary of Puritan theology on this topic justification, sanctification, union with Christ. This is who we are in him. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are a people of the new covenant. We are a new creation uh, in Christ. 
relationship between positional and progressive sanctification. Positional, we are sanctified. We have been made holy uh, by the work of Christ and the application of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 10.10 makes that very clear. But yet progressive, we're also to pursue sanctification. Uh, We need to maintain both in our teaching, whether it's counseling ourselves, helping others, the relationship between those two. Relationship between justification and sanctification. Um, I actually changed the wording on this one, the first one there, because we had a good discussion about it. I think it's fine. Obedience is necessary subsequent to salvation. Um, I I think what we have to maintain, uh, the reason why it's kind of tricky, I think we have to hold all three of these together. Um, What the Puritans were trying to say, though, is that someone who says, yes, I'm a believer, but they don't obey him, is not a believer. Okay, That's what they're trying to say. There's no such thing as the carnal Christian. Someone who, yes, you know, Jesus is uh, my Savior. He saved me from my sins, but he's not my Lord, and I don't have to obey him. Okay, that's what I was trying to warn against there. Um, obedience isn't necessary as the meritorious cause. That's not what earns or merits salvation. Uh, we are justified by faith alone. Point three, this is kind of a summary of it all. Obedience is necessary as the demonstrable evidence. We are saved, and therefore we obey. We are actually empowered to obey. Causes of sanctification, the Father, Son, the Spirit, uh, the individual, um, and finally, there are the means of sanctification. We looked at these last week. Consecrated life, renewed mind, transformed heart, treasuring the word, kind of the last three more practical, talking about the ordinary means of grace, cherishing prayer, devoting oneself to the church. I wanted to turn the page here. Ha, ha. You guys like that. I wanted to turn the page here. Uh, mainly looking, turning from the theological more so to the practical, like I already mentioned. What did life look like for the, you know, 17th century Puritan living in England? You know, what did their kind of family life look like, right? You've got family there, you know, it's, they look so happy, right? Um, you know, what was life like for them? Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, uh, you know, the church, preaching, corporate worship. I feel like we've got a pretty good grasp on those things because we spent, you know, the first couple weeks talking about that and the differences between the Roman Catholic Church and really what led to the whole Puritan movement per se. Um, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that. Uh, we already talked about how, what they call the Sabbath? You guys, does anyone remember? What they call the Sabbath? The market, the market day of the soul. Someone said it. Lori, be, be brave. You knew it. You knew it. The market day of the soul, right? Where they loved uh, the Lord's Day worship because it's like you're going to the market and you're just, you know, you're taking up everything for your body. That's what you're doing when you go to Walmart, Costco, wherever you shop. Well, they saw the church, the Lord's Day, Sabbath, like that. You're getting everything you need for your soul. You're filling up on the Word of God and that's nourishing your soul. You're spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ and that's, you know, developing your soul. Does that make sense? I think it's a good way to think about I typically don't think of church as the market day for my soul, but I think that's a good way to think about it, that I'm going to church because I actually need this, that this is actually what's going to fill me up to empower me to walk in obedience. Um, So, uh, like I said, they loved going to church. They loved biblical, theological preaching. Uh, You kind of have to, to endure some of these sermon series, right? Remember remember, uh, Joseph Carl? He preached over 400 sermons on the book of Job. Um... I, I don't think I could be in that church. That'd be rough, I think. I don't know. I've, I've actually never read those sermons. or one of I've, I'm sure they're good. Uh, but uh, yeah, a lot of sermons on Job. Here's just a couple. Thomas Manton, some other long series. So you can give Mark some grace. Uh, Thomas Manton, 190 sermons, all on Psalm 119. Okay. 
Now, Psalm 119, you guys know, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, right? 172 verses. So it's, but it's not even one, one sermon per verse, right? 190 sermons on 172 verses. So it's like, this verse is so good, I got to spend two weeks on it. Uh, yeah, that's a lot. And then Anthony Burgess, he's preached 145 sermons all on John 17. Um, I would say I think that's just a little much, okay? I think just a little. Um, they loved preaching. They loved getting together. Uh, you saw the beginning and rise of psalm singing. From my understanding, um, the, the Puritans were exclusive psalm singers only, okay? So they're not singing, you know, anything else but the psalms put to metrical uh, music, okay? Um, and also a cappella, okay? They're not having, you know, piano or anything like that. It's not until uh, the beginning of the 1700s, the 18th century, with Isaac Watts, from my understanding, is that you actually begin, um, you know, to see hymns being written appear in the church. You have the piano actually come in and all that stuff. Which, from my understanding, I think the piano, I mean, the, the church, they were like, this is no, we can't do this. Because the piano, I think, was like a tavern instrument that you'd play in bars. Okay, so, you know, for those of you who are like, the piano is the most reformed instrument ever. It's like, well, it wasn't, okay, uh, historically. So, you know, I'll, I'll stop there. I could get in trouble. Um, so church was central to the life of the Puritans. Uh, you now have the Bible in everyday English, right, where the laity can actually understand what's being preached um, or what's being taught. Like, can you imagine if you came to this class and I was talking in Latin? None of you would be here, and I wouldn't blame you, right? It's like, I have no idea what's being said. Um, And so what's going on is in the church, they actually understand what's being uh, preached and proclaimed. Just a historical note that literacy rates were still incredibly low compared to where we are today. I mean, they're pretty much, I mean, today it's, if it's not 100%, it's got to be like 99%, right? In terms of just basic literacy and retention rates. Um, A conservative estimate is that by mid-17th century, so 1650s, Uh, kind of that peak of the Puritan movement, probably around 25% of men could read, okay? So one in four. Um, And then for women, it would even be lower, around 10%, so one in 10. Um, So just keep that in mind. Um, But think about it. One in four, let's say Paxton's got a Bible and he can read. Now Kenyon, Walter, and I can actually get together. He can read the Bible in his home and I can understand what's being read. You can see how that just ignites, you know, a biblical revolution, a reformation like no else. Does that make sense? So just want to touch on that. Um, again, like I said, two areas I wanted to focus on this morning. Oh, I meant to have those drop down. I slacked. Ah, I gave you the answers. Uh, but we'll get to this. The divinely instituted purposes of marriage. So marriage and family. Focusing in on that. If you want the answers, they're all there. We'll walk through these. Uh, this is key to remember. The Reformers and then later the Puritans were revolutionary when it came to marriage and sexuality in particular. Um, key to understanding this is at the time in the Roman Catholic Church, the dominant view was that um, you know, sexuality between even a man and woman in the covenant of marriage, it was inherently sinful. Okay? It was just tainted by sin. Okay? Uh, and so you know, theoretically, if you could... you know. Any type of pleasure between a man and a wife was sinful, okay? So, I mean, you can just think about this. It's like if you can sleep with your spouse and have no pleasure in it, you're okay, okay? Now, hopefully you guys are like, that sounds horrible, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Yes, exactly, okay? Uh, so the Reformers and Puritans come along, and they're saying, no, this is wrong. This is horrible. This is also why in the Catholic Church, you know, they elevate, you know, celibate priests, you know, and virgin saints. 
Well, it's because they're inherently just more godly. Um, we would say, no, that's not true. Um, so they come along. Uh, Leland Riken, he states it very simply. In general, the Puritans affirmed what the Catholics denied and denied what the Catholics had traditionally affirmed. Okay? So what the Catholic Church was doing, the Puritans said no, um, and they went back to the Bible. Um, they looked at, obviously, you know, the passages we come to know on marriage and intimacy, right? Genesis 1 and 2, Proverbs 31, um, 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear on that, Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Timothy 3, all those texts. Uh, I just want to go over a couple. These are not the divinely instituted purposes of marriage. We can certainly come up with more. Uh, these are just some I'm drawing from the Puritans. Number one, provide companionship and mutual assistance. I would argue the Bible clearly demonstrates that marriage is not just for the purpose of procreation. It's not just for the purpose of having kids, okay? That is a purpose, but there is far more going on. It's designed to be a lifelong, one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman. Um, and a central part of this that the Puritans went to is your spouse is to be your closest friend. That's divinely instituted by the Lord. They are supposed to be, uh, you know, your closest friend in a unique way. Perkins, I talked about this, William Perkins, he's kind of the godfather, uh, we would say, of um, uh, the Puritan movement, Puritanism. He went to Proverbs 31 uh, to support this. You guys know Proverbs 31, you know, right? The, the excellent wife. Um, Proverbs 31, 11, just listen to this. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So very clearly, what? The excellent wife is a major help to her husband. Major helper. I mean, you read Proverbs 31 and it's just like, especially if you're a woman, but it, even if you're a man, but if you're a woman, it's like, oh, my goodness, this lady is amazing. Like, she never sleeps. She's making buku bucks. Like, whoa, like, this is crazy. Um, and, uh, and he went to that saying, yes, obviously the wife, but even more so for the husband, right? How much more should the husband provide, care for, uh, be a companion, uh, and be an assistance to uh, their wives? The foundational duty between husband and wife was love, right? Notice in there, what did I say? Duty, okay? It, they didn't root it mainly in an emotion or a feeling, right? In this covenant of marriage, this is your responsibility. You have a charge. You have a duty before the Lord to love your spouse. One Puritan we haven't talked much about, William Gouge, or Gouge, I actually don't know how exactly to pronounce his last name, but he wrote, a loving mutual affection must pass between husband and wife, or else no duty will be well performed. This is the ground of all the rest. If there's not loving affection between spouses, everything else is going to fall apart. If you don't have that self-sacrificial love where you're laying down your preferences and sacrificing for your spouse, uh, your marriage is going to be in trouble. So um, on this topic, I found this quote from Swinnick really helpful. I don't think I put it in the slides here. I wish I did. Um, he says this. This is a good reminder for all of us. He says, they ought to conceal each other's infirmities. He's talking about spouses. They ought to conceal each other's infirmities. It is wonderful folly for wives to publish their husband's faults and for husbands to proclaim their wives' weaknesses. It's a good reminder, okay? I mean, it just says a lot. I mean, maybe if you guys have secular workplace jobs, you know, maybe you've been around it where your coworker is just like, man, my wife just blah, 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 blah. Don't jump in that, okay? Get out of there. Or respond with, my wife is amazing. I, I, I just don't empathize with you at all because of how good the Lord has been. Like, like that says something, okay? Public testimony. So don't public, publicize 
you know, you're in the infirmities, as they would say, of your spouse, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. I think that's a good principle. Okay, number two, procreation and building the church through raising godly children. Children are a gift from the Lord. We think of Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I always joke with my wife's family that their quivers are overflowing. Um, They've just got a lot of kids. Um, And that's good. Children are a gift from the Lord. I think key to understanding this kind of second sub-point, building the church through raising godly children, you have to remember, think back to, I think, week three. uh, The Puritans were kind of the originators or formalizing of covenant theology. And so as such, they saw uh, the children in the church. If you are a member of the church, your children are covenant members of the church as well. Uh, It's not meaning that they're saved, Um, They would make the distinction that they would be um, in the covenant, but not of the covenant. You're like, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, there's a reason why we're not covenant theologians and why we disagree with that. Uh, But that's what they would say. Yeah, the children are not saved, but they're still a part of the visible community, much like Old Testament Israel was. Uh, Just because, you know, a son was born and he was circumcised does not mean that he's regenerate. just means that he's a part of the visible community. And so, as such, hey, your responsibility is to raise these children to turn to the Lord in faith. Your responsibility is to uh, bring them to the Lord and to raise them up. And so we might disagree with, you know, theologically how they got there, uh, but the principle of raising godly children is still applicable, right? It is our responsibility as parents to read the Bible with our kids, to pray with them, to uh, share the gospel with them, um, and to spend time uh, with them thinking of spiritual matters. Number three, God-honoring joy in physical intimacy. I was thinking the best way to word this. Um, God-honoring joy in physical intimacy. One Puritan said on a purpose of marriage, it is to possess their vessels, your bodies, in holiness and honor. What he's referring to is sexuality in marriage, okay? You know, for those of you who are like, man, the Purit- you hear maybe in school, the Puritans were prudes, they never talked about sex. That is just not true. They actually talked a lot about it. Uh, mainly in particular because they saw it as an illustration of Christ and his church. And so they loved to um, talk about marriage and intimacy. Um, But they talked about how here a healthy marriage is the best and most sanctified antidote to the sinful lusts of the flesh. Perkins called marriage a sovereign means to avoid fornication. Okay. Uh, you know, your spouse is given to you. One of those reasons is to not struggle in those sexual temptations and sins. Uh, Furthermore, on this, the Puritans did not see sexual intimacy between a man and a wife as a necessary evil. You know, that's what the Catholic Church would see. Well, you got to do it because we got to procreate. That's a good thing, but it's sinful. Puritans said, no, that is not true. Uh, That actually, it's a good thing, this intimacy between a man and a wife. That's something to be delighted in, that we can enjoy uh, with one another. It's a gracious gift by God. It's more than just a physical act. Uh, They actually saw it as a total union of two persons uh, being united, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, And so you should strengthen that relationship uh, with your spouse. And at the same time, though, they would stress marriage is not just physical intimacy. Okay, that's not all that it is. Um, And just so, you know, you didn't think the Puritans were funny. I thought this was hilarious. George Swinnick, he quoted this. He said, the Spanish proverb has a truth in it. 
that there is more required to marriage than two pairs of legs and one pair of sheets. That's funny. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't think of a Puritan pastor saying that, but it's true. Like it's, it's more than just two pairs of legs and one pair of sheets. And he goes on to say, without the union of hearts, the union of bodies will be no benefit. Okay. If your hearts are not knit together, uh, you know, who you are in Christ and being knit together with one another, you know, the physical intimacy of things is, is of no benefit. More could be said on that. I want to uh, move on back to the family side of things. Just one note, uh, in Riken's book, Worldly Saints, I mentioned that week one, he has a really good chapter um, just surveying Puritan teaching on marriage and family and all that stuff. But on to the family side of things. The family side of things. This is a key historical point, key historical context. Sometimes readers of the Puritans are very surprised at how much they talk about suffering, okay? They talk about, you know, despair, um, loss, hardship. Um, you know, maybe you're familiar with Thomas Boston's book, The Crook in the Lot, um, or The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel. Um, they talk about suffering a lot. Well, remember, uh, they're going on, you know, when they're uh, ministering, when they're living, what's going on? Civil war, political turmoil, Okay. Um, you know, fires are breaking out in London and killing, you know, 25% of the population, okay? Massive uh, things like this. But also, is you have the plague. The plague is breaking out, and infant mortality rates were just insane, okay? Uh, children dying um, is just, obviously, it's a hard thing to think about, but we just don't understand, okay? Um, just with the, the grace of modern medicine. Um, but, I mean, this is just true, okay? I mentioned Owen before. Owen had 10 children, and he outlived all of them, okay? He outlived all 10 of his kids. Um, I think only one or two of them actually lived to adulthood. The rest of them dying before, I think, the age of 21. Um, Nehemiah Wallington, he's uh, interesting because he was not a pastor, but he took just insane notes um, uh, as a Puritan. He was just a layman. He was just a normal guy. He worked on uh, wood. He was a woodworker. And he took tons and tons of notes. And we get a glimpse into this from his notes. Um, in the local church where he was a member, here's some of the numbers here. The church clerk recorded 190 deaths and burials and recorded the ages of 171 of those. This was over like a three or five year period, something like that. So he recorded 190 people died and he actually gave the ages of 171 of them. Okay, so about 90%. Okay, so of that, 20% of those deaths were under the age of one, okay? 20%, okay? 64%, so almost two-thirds of that 170, I'm not good with math, but was that maybe like 120, something like that, okay? Were before the age of 21, okay? So two-thirds, I mean, if you just kind of tease out two-thirds of your population dying before their 21st birthday, okay? I mean, that's just staggering, okay? Um, only 8% lived past the age of 50, so incredibly, I mean, just people are dying a lot, lot younger. Um, and if you have, you know, four or five kids, the chances are um, you're going to lose three or four of them. Nehemiah and his wife, Grace, they had five children. Four of them died before they were three. Um, only one survived to adulthood, married his brother, John, and his wife, Mary. They had five kids. One was stillborn. Two died before the age of two. One at the age of nine. The last, before, uh, the last at the age of 14. So none of them made it to adulthood, okay? So I think you understand that, and you see why they talked about sin and suffering and just doubt and despair so much, right? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's hard to imagine, those of us who have kids, if you're losing 
three or four, you know, if you're losing 80% of your kids, I don't know how many kids you have. Um, that's hard, okay? That is very sobering. Um, and so that is why they would talk about grief, sorrow so much. So in raising children, uh, the church saw the family as the building block of church and society. If you see problems in the church, if you see problems in society, it goes back to the family. It goes back to the biological family, godly parents not raising their children, or ungodly parents not raising their children up in the Lord. And I think, I mean, you can just transplant that to our society today, right? Why do we see problems in society as a whole? We're we're quick to point to a lot of things. I would argue it always goes back to the family. It always goes back to the breakdown of the family, uh, divorce um, in particular. I mean, there's just so many things, um, and it's just the, the trickle down effect of that. So, How do you love your kids the most? By sharing the gospel with them, by praying for their salvation, by teaching them to read the Bible if you can read, helping them to do that. Just a few quotes from George Swinnick here. Um, He says, Now, how will you manifest your love for your children if you do not teach them God's law? Is he a loving father that trims and adorns his children's clothes if he provides clothes for them, but he starves their bodies? Answer, no. Well, surely then, they are cruel parents who feed their children's dying flesh, but murder and famish their immortal souls. It's like, how can you feed their bodies and not their souls, uh, Christian parents? Um, Next one here. He says you need to do this when your kids are young. You need to train them up in the way that they should go. When your children are young, you may probably persuade and prevail them to mind holiness and heaven. I like his parentheses here. While they are under the rod, they are usually under rule, right? When you can discipline them, when you can apply a kitchen wooden spoon to their behind when they're little, that's the time to train them. Look at what he says when he goes on. But if then they be neglected at that point and be once grown headstrong, if they grow up and you haven't taught them these things, they grow headstrong, it will be easier with blows to break their backs than with counsel and admonition to break their hearts. It's a very sobering reminder for those of us who are parents, right? It's far easier when they are little to teach them, to train them, to raise them up, uh, uh, rather than when they're older. It's just simply not going to happen. So many um, examples here. I'm going to move on. Um, Yeah, I'm going to skip that last quote. Move on here to uh, the Puritans and uh, their biblical meditation and prayer, okay? Biblical meditation and prayer. Actually, I did want to mention this funny quote. Sometimes people go back to the Puritans because they talk about, you know, male headship, okay? People even critique the church today. Well, you know, hey, you believe in male headship, um, you know, and the wife to be submissive and all these things. That's true. Yeah, we do, okay? Um, But it goes back to uh, the hierarchy that God established is one of function, not one of worth, okay? It's not saying that men are worth more than women. No, okay? We're all created in God's image, okay? But how God has designed things to work in the family and in the church, there are different roles, okay? I don't know if you guys know this, men, but there are things your wife can do that you cannot do, okay? Like give birth, okay? And uh, yeah, you just can't do that no matter how hard you try. Um, So there are just different responsibilities. God has hardwired us differently, biologically, all those things, okay? Uh, It's God's good design. Um, He actually has a really good point, Swinnick, before I move on to this. Um, He talks about uh, the wife and their submissive role. I thought this quote was really good. An obedient wife is the likeliest woman in the world to command her husband. 
What, she's saying, what he's saying there is that a submissive, loving Proverbs 31 woman will actually have incredible influence and impact on her husband in a God-honoring way. I think that's true. Right? If, if your wife just, you know, is just loving the Lord, loving you, saying, yes, let's do these things and just not putting up a fight and all these things, like, I know I step back and I'm like, man, like, you're amazing. Like, thank you. Like, what do you want to do? You know? Like I just said, like with our house, like with decor, I literally don't care. Like, I'm just like, sure, yeah, whatever you want to do. Because like, she makes my life so much easier in so many different other ways, okay? So I thought that quote was, was really helpful. Uh, William Gouge, going back to him, he said, Though the man be as the head, yet is the woman as the heart. Or, for those of you who have seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding, as the great theologian Maria says, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. Okay? Uh, I love that movie. Uh, but it's true, right? Uh, I think maybe not. But I, there's something to be said there. You know, the man's ahead, but the woman kind of turns that head. Okay, that was a joke. I don't know if you guys got that. But uh, yes, moving on. Biblical meditation and prayer in the Puritans. I think in our personal devotions, this is where we need to do more work. Uh, I, this is me personally. It's easy for me to check off the box. Hey, I read my chapter in the Old Testament. I read my chapter in the New Testament. Whew, I'm good for the day. Okay. I think where we need to spend more time is actually probably reading less of the Bible. Okay? You're like, Caleb, are you really saying that? Yes, I am. Maybe read less, meditate more, and pray more. Okay? Read less, meditate more, and pray more. Oftentimes, these two go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. Swinnick says, meditation is the best beginning of prayer, and prayer is the best conclusion of meditation. You find a principle in God's Word, you meditate on it, chew on it, and then you go to prayer. We need to be doing more of that. So just kind of some points here. I think you, you might not have these on your notes. We'll get to it. The nature of meditation. What do we mean by meditation? We're not talking about secular uh, you know, mysticism where what they mean by meditation is you empty your mind, you jettison everything. You go to the beach and you, you, know, you put your hands like this, you sing Kumbaya. Maybe you don't even sing Kumbaya. I don't even know what Kumbaya is. Um, but everyone says it, right? That's not what we're talking about. The nature of meditation. Biblical meditation is something completely different. Here's what Swinnick says. Me- meditation is a serious applying the mind, okay? So this is not emptying your mind, but focusing your mind. It's a serious applying of the mind to some sacred subject. He's talking about scripture. Until our affections are warmed, until our hearts are stirred, until we desire to do this thing, uh, and our resolution is strengthened against evil. We desire to do what's right, and by implication, we desire to um, not do um, what's evil. Thomas Watson, really good one here as well. It, he's talking about biblical meditation. It's a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and seriously ponder them and apply them to ourselves. So slowing down to uh, savor the truth. Uh, The practice of meditation, this is where I've got quite a few points that will drop down. Um, Just a couple of preparatory ones. We must plan, okay? Uh, We talk about biblical meditation. Typically, this is not something that's just going to happen willy-nilly, okay? If you guys are like me, we're busy in the mornings. We're rushing out the door. We don't make time to meditate. So we need to plan for it. Place, we need to remove distractions. Leave your phone in another room. Stop, slow down, focus. And then here's those steps. Number one, seek God's blessing. Seek God's blessing. Ask him to help you with these things. Number two, 
select a biblical truth. So maybe you're reading, you know, John chapter 1, whatever you're reading, Exodus chapter 34, whatever it is, find something in that text that jumps out, that stands out to you, that is true from God's word. And then number three, ask questions. What does this mean? What are the implications? What must I do? Those are the kind of these questions. Number four, apply. What have I done in relation to this verse? Have I been obedient? Have I understood this, right? I need to apply it. Where have I been? And then point five, resolve. What will I do, okay? This is what this truth of God's word says. This is how I have been relating to it in the past. Here's what I need to do. Resolve, right? You think of the resolutions of uh, Jonathan Edwards. These are the resolutions. This is what I must do. And then number six, seek God's help. Um, I think it's helpful. You know, one and six are kind of the same thing. All throughout, you're asking the Lord for help. Lord, help me to meditate on this truth. Boom, 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 boom. Number six, seek God's help. You're asking for his help again. And then that second section, you guys got all those? Sorry, I realized I went through that kind of fast. Um, The benefits of meditation, why do we do this? Number one, it deepens repentance. (coughs) Oftentimes as we meditate on truth, we realize how sinful we are, how we have failed to measure up to this. It deepens repentance. Number two, it encourages the mortification of sin. It encourages the putting to death of sin where we have been falling short. Number three, it inflames devotion. Our hearts are stirred as we do this, as we delight in God's word and how we need to walk in light of it. Number four, it imparts comfort. I mean, how many times? I mean, I think this is so true of the Psalms, right? You know, I lift my eyes up to Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, right? You just sit there and meditate on that for a little bit. You consider all your major problems, which you think are so, and maybe you do have big problems in your life. I'm not trying to minimize those, but go back to Psalm 121. You just take that. The Lord is my help, right? The one who made heaven and earth. He will help me with these things. That comforts, okay? That's what we're talking about. Number five, cultivates joy and thanksgiving. Taking that same principle. Wow, the God who made heaven and earth is my helper. That should cause us to increase in joy, right? And thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for who you are. Number six, it facilitates retention. As you slow down and ponder these truths. You know, like Psalm 121 is actually a good example. I don't have the whole thing memorized, but from meditating on it, you know, I kind of memorized those first two verses, right? Or um, Psalm 130. You know, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Excuse me. But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness that you might be feared. Slow down, meditate on that, and you'll remember those verses, okay? You know, you're talking to your neighbor. Um, well, if you've been meditating, you'll probably have that verse that's like, oh, what was that verse I was thinking about? Well, slow down. Think about it. Don't move on, okay? That is meditation in brief. I've got five minutes, so I want to move on to prayer. Does that make sense? Helpful? Puritans have a lot of helpful stuff on the biblical practice of meditation. Prayer. Prayer. I want to move on to that. The Puritans were a praying people. There's so many points uh, that could be drawn here. This is mainly a collection of quotes from Bunyan uh, and Scripture as well. Number one, what is prayer? Prayer is a sensible, a sensible pouring out of the heart to God. What does he mean by that, by sensible? Well, Bunyan here, he says, sincerity carries the soul in all simplicity. That's often what they mean by sensible. Don't, you know, don't be like, you know, the, uh, you know, as 
you know, the Lord uh, warns against in the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees who practice their righteousness, you know, where they're saying, you know, all these amazing prayers, but they're not sensible. They're not from the heart. They're not simple. Sincerity carries the soul in all simplicity to open its heart to God and to tell him the case plainly. Look, you can just go to God in prayer and say, Lord, I need your help. You don't have to say, Almighty Heavenly Father, you have created all things. We humbly come before you and beseech thee for the assistance in thy matter. Like, it's just like, I mean, you can do that. I don't know. If that's your sensible way, I'm not trying to badmouth anyone either. But, but simple, okay? Keep it simple, silly, okay? Keep it simple, right? Uh, it tells itself plainly. Sorry, tells the case plainly without equivocation. To condemn itself plainly without dissembling, right? We don't disguise or conceal our true motives while we're approaching the Lord in prayer. To cry to God heartily without complimenting ourselves on our prayers. Sincerity is the same in a corner as it is before the whole world. Okay? How you pray at home when no one's watching is the same before the whole world. That's what he means by sincere, or excuse me, sensible. Number two is sincere. Prayer is a sincere pouring out of the heart to God. Here he's talking about our affections, our feelings. Those are vital uh, in prayer. I like this quote from Swinnick. God looks not so much to the elegancy of your prayers, how neat they are, nor to the geometry of your prayers, how long they are. I really like that one, right? But to the sincerity of your prayers, how hearty they are. How much is your heart engaged in it? How much is your heart, uh, you know, devoting itself to the Lord and encouraged, drawn, you know, they would say affections. We might say feelings, right? I think affections is a much better term because we need to cultivate godly affections. So prayer is a sincere pouring out of the heart to God. Number three, prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God through Christ. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God through Christ. Bunyan says here, Christ is the way through whom the soul has admittance to God, John 14. And without whom, without Christ, it is impossible that so much as one desire should come unto the ears of the Lord. Talking about the intercession of Christ as he actively intercedes for us. On this point, I don't know why, but I just feel like over the last month or two, I've been struck with um, just me not being thankful for the Lord as I ought to be. Um, I, I think this is a sobering reminder uh, we need to think of the Lord and all that he has done for us. Uh, you know, all that we have needed, his hand has provided. And it comes to us not on the basis of our own righteousness, because we have none, but on, based on the righteousness of who? Of Christ, right? It is through Christ that the Father sees us and he blesses us with every spiritual blessing uh, in the heavenly places. It's all in and through Christ. So pray the gospel. Think of the truths of the gospel. Meditate you know, on passages like John 3.16 and then pray those promises back to the Lord and thank him for the provision of Christ. Number four, moving quickly here, I've just got two more. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Thomas Manton, haven't talked about him a lot. He's wonderful, another Puritan preacher. Um, he's the guy who preached 190 sermons on Psalm 119. Uh, serious dealing with God in prayer is wrought in us by the Spirit, in whose light we see both God and ourselves, His majesty and our vileness, His purity and our sinfulness, His greatness and our nothingness. As you see God in His splendor and His holiness, who He is by the assistance of the Holy Spirit, 
you truly see yourself, right? You see who you are, vile, sinful, and nothing compared to who God is. And so prayer is uh, wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. We think of Romans 8.26 uh, to 27, right? The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings. You know, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit cultivates and aids us in our weaknesses. Last point here. Number five, prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God for what He has promised. This is a vital point here. Prayer is a pouring out of the heart to God for what He has promised. I, I really like this quote. Oh, did I put Swinnick? This is actually Bunyan. I didn't change that. Uh, this is a quote from John Bunyan. Prayer it is. This is what prayer is. When it is within the compass of God's word. It's prayer when you're praying according to what God has said. And it is blasphemy. And it's like, whoa, blasphemy. That's a strong word. And he's like, well, or at best it's vain babbling. Okay? It's vain nothingness when the petition is beside the book. Okay? When you're praying for something that's not in accord uh, not in accordance with what God has said, at the very best, it's vain babbling, right? We must pray according to what God has promised in His Word. So, you know, I mean, James 4.3 talks about this, right? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's he saying there? You're not asking, petitioning of the Lord according to what He has said, right? On the contrary, right, you know, you seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Right? The Lord loves to bless His people. Right? We pray according to God's word. Ask and you will receive. Right? This is why we pray for the salvation of sinners. Right? Because God loves to save sinners. Okay? We pray according to what He has promised. One pastor said on this point, I thought this was helpful, faith isn't the confidence that anything can happen, but the confidence that what God has promised will happen. It's a really good reminder. Faith isn't you know, just saying, well, anything can happen because God can do it. Well, no, faith is saying, I believe this is going to happen because God has promised that he will do it. So we pray according to the promises of God. We ask that he would fulfill them. All right, so that is ended pretty much on time, just a few minutes over. Any questions on anything like that? We don't really have time, so maybe you can ask me afterwards. Uh, that's, that's the key, is, is you, end, you end so you have no time, so if you have questions, sorry. Um, now, if you have questions, I'm more than happy to talk to you. So this is our second to last giveaway, okay, right? Second to last giveaway. I have to say, this is a good one. If I haven't hyped up the other ones enough, okay. She doesn't even know what it is, and she wants it. Okay, this is The Bruised Reed uh, by Richard Sibbs. Um, Richard Sibbs, I haven't talked about him much. Um, if you guys know Pastor Mark Dever, right? He's the Nine Marks guy. He did his doctoral work in Richard Sibbs. He loves The Bruised Reed. Um, what Sibs does in there is he takes a passage from Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 42, which is talking about the suffering servant, um, says, you know, a bruised reed he will not break. And I think Matthew quotes it as well. And he just delights in the person of Christ, okay? And his compassion for sinners. You know, a bruised reed, a bruised soul, a, a soul that's doubting, despair, discouraging. Christ will not break that soul. Um, so it's a lot, it's wonderful. I've read a couple of his sermons on there. It's a collection of sermons um, on that. So I don't know why I'm hyping it up because you're the only one who gets it. But for the rest of you, it's really good. You should read it. Okay. All right. Next week, our very last week, we are going to learn from kind of a summary week, learning from Puritan faults. Okay. We've been, I've been tooting their horn. What They were just, you know, the, you know, they were almost glorified on earth, right? You know, no, they had faults. Okay. Uh, learning from Puritan faults, and also what they did really well. I do want to end on that because there are a lot of implications we can take away. So learning from Puritan faults 
and their excellencies. That is next week. All right? Hope to see you then. You guys are dismissed.